together, all three campuses. We're one church in three locations, and our men's group are working together. They're brainstorming how they can do it well. Anthony, Anthony Step Out has done such an incredible job this first year uh, just hosting that, casting vision for that, but, but they're trying to do some big things. And let me just encourage you, it's one of the life group flyers we have out on that table, and I just encourage you to find some place to get rooted. It's 1 Thessalonians 2.8 where it says that uh, we loved you so much we didn't just share the gospel with you, we shared our lives with you. And that's the idea with life groups, man. We don't want to just come together for 90 minutes on a weekend and check off a box. We want to get rooted in community, relationship, accountability, all the growth and fruit that comes with that. There's Anthony. Let's give him one more hand while he's in here. We're saying thank you for running the men's group, man. <laughs> but after that challenge, let me also give a congratulations. How many of you guys made a New Year's resolution? Couple, couple. You've made it 21 days. So if you're still rolling, you've made it to the, the legendary 21-day mark where they say you've now made a habit or you have made a new paradigm or a, a, a new way of thinking, a new practice. Only that's not exactly what the, the researcher said. He says it's at least 21 days. So not to burst your bubbles. It's kind of like a bad game of telephone. We just took 21 days and ran with it because it was short enough to be inspirational and long enough to be realistic. But hey, Maybe you got that habit working out for you. But uh, have you ever had a New Year's resolution that, that just fizzled fast? Didn't last very long. Anybody dare to share that New Year's resolution? Nope. Oh, Mike. Eating well. How long did that last? <laughs> Steph. Exercising every day. How long did that last? Two days. <laughs> I know, oh, Cor, go ahead. Reading every day. How long that last? <laughs> Anthony's cheering you on from the back. Do it again this year. We'll roll with you. I'm a former uh, art major, so I like to knock off the rust every now and again. In one year, I was like, I'm going to draw every day. That lasted about maybe five days. I don't think I had to pencil, sharpen my pencil a second time because it didn't last that long at all. It ended very poorly. And, and another something that ended poorly recently is probably one of the worst three decisions I've made in my life. I went to uh, the gym on January 3rd at 6 p.m. Not even thinking about it because, you know, I'm, I'm going daily and then I realize I look at the clock. I'm like, it's six o'clock. It about it's the Y, so it's a big building, but there were at least 300 people in there. And that wasn't even the bad part. The bad part was it felt like it was 300 degrees. I don't know if it was just because of all the body sweating or what. Just massive mistake. But uh, Anthony hit me up with a list for the SLT team. Later that night, I went to Sam's Club on January 3rd. And just about every supplement, protein, amino acid you could ever want was on sale. And I was like, well, that made up for earlier, right? Now it's time to go on Craigslist, eBay, for all those people that bought those things. They're not exercising anymore. They have no use for it. I'm going to go find them on Craigslist, get all their stuff. But New Year's resolutions, we do them, some of us. <laughs> we joke them. We make light of them. But I think we respect and appreciate the idea of a New Year's resolution because at the heart of a resolution is this healthy, healthy realization that progress, it doesn't just happen. Progress doesn't happen spontaneously. We have to plan for it, work toward it, and dedicate ourselves to it. I mean, if you look at the life we celebrated on Monday, Martin Luther King Jr., you look at what he fought for, the civil rights movement, him and so many others, they had to strategize. They had to suffer. They protested all for progress. And there's still progress to be made, lots of hurdles to be jumped. And it's not just going to happen spontaneously. There's going to be work, vision, and more that goes into that. Because progress doesn't just happen. 
Growth doesn't just happen unless you're healthy and you're eating and you're a little kid, right? <laughs> it's intentional. I remember uh, towards the end of last year, 2016 almost became like a caricature on social media. Everybody was like, man, I'm done with 2016. Get it out of here. And, and 2017 was like this, this hero that was going to come swooping in. And, and maybe in your life, like, there's no way 2017 could be worse than 2016. But I also saw people that were just running with that. And it's like insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And some of these people are living the same lives with the same habits, the same people around them expecting different results. Progress doesn't just happen by accident. You know, there's a progressive view of culture, and I think I almost have to pause and define it because progressive has become such a political term that some champion, some attack, whatever. Progressive and progress is a good thing as long as you're progressing out of the right thing and into the right thing. I think we can agree on that. But progressive is also this view of history. Another word for a progressive view of history is one that's called Whig history, W-H-I-G, Whig history. It's this historic belief in the inevitability of progress, that in the grand scheme of things, we will inevitably march from dark to light, from bondage to freedom, from ignorance to enlightenment. So if there's a new idea and it breaks from history, chances are we want to champion it. And as this plays out in our society, right and wrong gets redefined by social developments under the facade of progress. And you begin to see phrases and conversations and, and maybe lighthearted debates where somebody, maybe not lighthearted debates, where they might say, hey, you're on the wrong side of history. Anybody ever said that to you before? And they might point to Christopher Columbus and how the religious of the day, they, they told him to pause and pump the brakes because he thought the world wasn't flat. When in reality, most of the world at that time realized that the world wasn't flat. They just thought he severely underestimated the circumference of the world, which he did. <laughs> you also see that idea played out when people look back at the ancient Mayans and how much they knew about the stars or the Egyptians and all the architectural feats they were able to accomplish. And some people are like, man, it had to be aliens, right? Because how could a society that far back be that close to us, almost shoulder to shoulder in their knowledge. It's where we get the, the great meme of the guy from the History Channel with the crazy hair about the aliens. I'll post it later. Two of you know what I was just talking about. But the reality is, the reason I say all of that, is I'm more concerned about being on the wrong side of God's truth than I am a, a, a flawed view of history. Progress, it doesn't just happen. Again, progress is good as long as you're progressing from something we need to leave and progressing into something that is equally beneficial. It's something we should champion. But change for change's sake isn't always progress. And simply stepping into a new year, a new era, a, a new time, it, it doesn't ensure progress. History shows that. The Bible screams that. If you've ever read the book of Judges, or excuse me, the book of Joshua into the book of Judges, which is what I want to look at tonight. When we're walking into Joshua, Joshua was a unique nation because it was a nation of law, but it was without a king. God was king, and they were a nation of law under the authority of God. And in the book of Joshua, we're out of Exodus. Maybe you've seen the Prince of Egypt. Maybe you haven't even gone to church that long, but you've seen the Prince of Egypt, the Ten Commandments, or the new movie Exodus that Ridley Scott just made. We're out of that. They've been in the desert for 40 years. They came to the promised land the first time and punked out. So God said, hey, go back into the wilderness for 40 years so that the next generation can take it. Moses has passed the baton onto Joshua, and Joshua is at the promised land with the Israelites. And in Joshua chapter 3, verse 5, 
he says this. He says, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. You know, as Anthony was talking about, next week is our one-year anniversary as a church. One year ago, about now, this verse meant a lot to me because we were about to leave Newport News, where we had been for a decade, about to cross the water like the Israelites were about to cross the Jordan River, right? And it was, this was our promised land, the south side, that we were going to, to, to take over. So I wanted to consecrate my life. I wanted to consecrate this pulpit. I wanted to consecrate the church to whatever God's will was for us. And consecration, it's, it's something we'll define in, in greater depth in a minute, but it, it basically means to put yourself under or commit yourself to. They place themselves under God as king, his rule, his truth. Because here's a reality. The kingdom of God is not a democracy. We live in a democracy, so sometimes we project that onto the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God, again, it's a theocracy. God is king. He's not voted in. He doesn't have a four-year term. He's not concerned with popularity polls or approval ratings. He's king. There's never any transfer of power. How many of you guys have ever had to define the relationship talk? Or maybe somebody sat you down for one. <laughs> quick, quick hands raised like this because you're by your spouse. That's where the boy, or the, the young man sits down with the young woman and he's supposed to, you know, talk about where they're at, where this is headed. What's the vision for the relationship? Probably 50% of the time, the young lady leaves more confused than she was on the way in. But we need to have a, a define the relationship talk with God. We need to remember that we're not in this as equals. When we sin, it's not a lover's quarrel. It is rebellion against a king. That God is a king and we were made to be ruled over by him. Genesis 1.1, it starts with, in the beginning, God. Chapters 1 and chapters 2, they reveal God as king over creation, that he carries so much authority that he speaks and things come into existence. The creator king, he creates a realm which he rules and everything else is under him, the creator. And we see in Eden that we were made, we were created to function at our peak under his rule. The reality we see in Genesis is that humanity was made to be ruled. To make that more personal tonight and to say it again loud and clear, you were made to be ruled. Because he is our creator king, because he created us, he knows us, we belong to him. He sets the order. And in light of all that, we're accountable to him. And as we walk in his commands, we experience freedom. It's the pattern we see throughout this book of Joshua as they go into the promised land. When they were obedient, they were victories, literal victories in battle. When they were disobedient, they were defeated. So Joshua, as they're about to step into the promised land, he reminds them who the Lord was, that God is king, that we need to consecrate ourselves to him before they stepped out of the desert and into the promised land. Joshua is this record of God's faithfulness as God's people walk in obedience. And afterwards, after the battles, after they take the land, in Joshua 24, he again says, hey, we need to consecrate ourselves. It's in Joshua 24 where he says, hey, choose this day who you will serve. Because he realizes we're going to serve somebody. We were made to be ruled. So we're either going to be ruled by God or some lowercase kings or some idols. Choose who you're going to serve. And then we got to ask the question as we're moving into Judges, will this consecrated commitment from Moses and Joshua, will it follow into the next generation as they get planted into the promised land? Or are they just going to put down roots and bear fruit? And you begin to read Judges and you read all the way through Judges. And then in Judges chapter 21, verse 25, as the book of Judges is coming to its conclusion, it says, in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. The Israelites had rejected 
consecration to God as king. Judges 2 says specifically at the beginning of Judges, they had just buried Joshua. They're probably still wearing like the, the clothes from the funeral. And it says that they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, and followed and worshiped various gods of the peoples around them. And how did that work out? Well, Judges is 21 chapters, ironically. So maybe 21 days you form a habit. 21 chapters are like, how did they settle in in this promised land? Did they have a 21-day fix or a 21-chapter fix? It's not exactly progress into a Hollywood ending. It's a slow downward spiral through the book of Judges. This is degeneration of God's people that, honestly, the last couple chapters are filled with as much filth as the worst Hollywood, the worst rated Hollywood movie. It's like Stephen King's, what's the name of that movie? Misery? I Means like Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho with some Halloween mixed in. Like, that, those are the last chapters of Judges. I remember when I was a new believer, a, a father told me, he's like, yeah, I don't, I don't let my son read the Old Testament yet. I was like, really? That's lame, right? It's your baby, whatever. And then I read some of the Old Testament. I read the book of Judges, and you realize, man, you get to the end of Judges, you take a deep sigh, not because it was a happy ending, but because you don't have to be made uncomfortable, again, by this degeneration of God's people. If Joshua is an account of God's faithfulness, Judges is an account of Israel's unfaithfulness as they lived as they saw fit. The pattern we see throughout Judges again and again is Israel falls into sin and apathy. God raises up a leader, quote-unquote, a judge, to deliver them. So the people acknowledge God, and then Israel falls back into sin and apathy again, and God raises up another judge, and the Israelites acknowledge him, and the cycle just happens again and again until Judge's conclusion where it says, in those days, there was no king. There was no physical king. But more importantly, there was no spiritual king. Because, again, in the history of Israel, God was king, and they were a nation under his law and under his authority. But they'd thrown off God's authority. And as it says, they did what was right in their own eyes. Come on, that sounds a lot like American culture. Hello, the American dreamer. We can do what we want with who we want whenever we want, and nobody's going to tell us otherwise. As long as it's not hurting anybody, then we should be able to do what we want, when we want, how we want. You know, last weekend for the sharing service, just briefly spoke before you guys shared your stories about how the Old Testament stories are powerful because we see the teachings of the New Testament, the teachings of the, the wisdom books in the Old Testament, we see it walked out in narrative history. And this is Proverbs 14, 12, walked out in Judges, where it says, there's a way that seems right to man. In Judges, they were just doing what seemed right in their own eyes. But in Proverbs 14, 12, it says it leads to death. And it's also a reflection of our society. You know, last weekend, we were sharing our stories, and we don't have an award for using the best word, but Greg used the word cantankerous, and I respect that. That's a word we don't use enough. I'm going to work that into, like, next week's sermon or something. But how many of you guys know Oxford Dictionary? It has a word of the year every year. Anybody know what the word of the year was last year? I don't really expect you to know this. I don't have anything for you, but you are correct, Denise. <laughs> Post-truth. Oxford Dictionary, they say, we choose words that highlight the interplay between our words and our culture. And last year, the word was post-truth. And this isn't some trendy word like YOLO that teenagers made that, you know, somehow slid its way into our culture and all the way into our dictionaries. This is a, a word used by the elites of our day. And the definition of the word post-truth, it's this. It's relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. I'll read that again because that was a mouthful. 
relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. And the word post-truth, post doesn't mean after as much as it means an atmosphere where truth is irrelevant. Who cares about the facts as long as I feel good? I don't care about the truth as, as long as I'm happy. Good luck raising your kids in, in that kind of environment. That's a recipe for anarchy. But in the, in the name of, of happiness, in the name of, of feeling good, we've jumped ship on truth. But it's nothing new. We just haven't had a word for it. You look in the Gospels where Pontius Pilate says to Jesus, what is truth? You look all the way in Genesis where the serpent says to Eve, well, well did God really say You know, we see this attempt to redefine and cast off truth. What's the beef we have with truth? Well, truth makes demands. (laughs) Truth demands obedience. Truth carries in it authority. And if there is, if we accept this reality of absolute truths and objective morals that rule over everything, then they must have come from a transcendent source. And that transcendent source points right to the creator, God. But truth makes demands. And, and on the surface, the reality of God, it's not a big deal to our culture. Most people in America will say they believe in God. They believe in a God. All but a, a loud minority of atheists don't believe in God. But most of America, right, we, we can finish the call and response, God is good all the time. And all the time, that is all the time until he messes with my feelings and what makes me happy and and sets himself up as king. Most of us are cool with God as long as he doesn't tell us what to do. You know, the promised land, when the Israelites got there, the idea of a God, the idea of supernatural uh, beings having an effect on our lives, that wasn't new to them. Most homes in in the region that they, they were walking into, they had what they called household gods, these idols that they would pray to and ask for some kind of sign in the weather, and and that would determine whether they move or they settle. That would determine whether they fight or they flee. And the whole idea was you just hope your household God is more powerful than your neighbor's household God. And Joshua, in his farewell address before his death, again in Joshua 24, he reminds the Israelites that God in his truth demands that we get rid of that garbage because he is the creator, deliverer, and king. Again, in Joshua 24, 15, he says, choose this day, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my household, my household God is the God that delivered us out of Egypt. My household God is the God that walks with us into the promised land. You know, it's, it seems logical that polytheism, this belief in, in all these idols and all these different gods, it, it would have gone away with Abraham when God revealed himself to him that, that we would have been able to work that out by now. But Joshua calls the Israelites here to put away the other gods that, quote, unquote, remain in your midst. They'd hung around. Old habits die hard, and consecration isn't easy. That's why Joshua is bookended with these calls to consecration, because Joshua realizes that the people need a reminder to make a resolution to resolve for themselves. And again, at the heart of resolutions is, is what we can respect, that progress just doesn't happen by itself. And he foresaw well before we get to a verse of Judges that if our resolutions, if our resolve is based on our feelings and what makes us feel good, it'll be a dead end of disturbing proportions. He knew there was a resolution that would spark the transformation that was needed. And this resolution was consecration. 
And it's the same for us. It's the one resolution in life that we all make that affects every other resolution, every other step. And, you know, I haven't really totally defined it yet. I keep using the word, maybe you're like, well, what does it mean? It speaks to taking something ordinary and putting it aside for God to use, for his use, for holy purposes. A simple framework for consecration would be that we belong to God. We set ourselves apart for his purposes. Paul says in Romans 14, 8, for whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or we die, we are the Lord's. From life to death, from the womb to the tomb, we're God's. We belong to him. That's what he's saying here. We're 100% the Lord's. You know, I played a lot of games as a kid, board games, because I was one of four. So um, we played a lot of Guess Who. Anybody remember Guess Who? That's probably my favorite. Played a lot of life. But we also kept it simple. We played a lot of checkers. And we had the, the, the cheap plastic ones, you know, with the ridges that stack real nice. This is a, a wood one. It's made out of wood. It's not quite as big as the ones at Cracker Barrel. Nothing better than just hanging out on a nice day outside of Cracker Barrel on the rocking chairs, playing checkers. It all goes downhill when you go outside and start eating their food, but shots fired. My mom was a good cook. But I can remember as a little kid, when it was time to king me, I would say it with as much swagger and disrespect and look you right in your eyes, this little punk eight-year-old, like, king me, right? <laughs> king me. Consecration is our response to God's invitation that we've had since creation where he says, hey, king me. Make me king of your life. Now, our flesh pulls back from this idea that, that we're made to be ruled over, that, that we're called to make God king. Because our flesh pulls from this. Hey, I belong to me. You king me. My household gods serve me. I'm captain of my ship. I'm master of my fate. I know what's best. I do what I see fit, what makes me happy. It's the cry of our culture that you're king. You know what's best for you, that the autonomous self, it knows how to flourish. How ironic is it that our original fight as Americans was, was from and against the king? But the unstated part of the American dream that's developed is, again, this idea that one day I'll be able to do what I want, when I want, with who I want, how I want, and nobody will be able to tell me what to do because that's freedom. or That's our idea or picture of freedom. Again, a progressive stance is good as long as you're progressing into a good thing. Fighting for freedom is good. Fighting for our freedom from Britain was good, unless your concept of freedom is an error. See, freedom isn't the ability to just do what we want. Again, that's the chorus of our culture. Freedom is the ability to do what we ought, to function how we were created, to do what we were created to do, which is obey, obedience. But, man, you look at our culture, you look at anxiety, depression, lack of peace, stress that just runs rampant in our Western culture. They come from not functioning as we were created to function. The stresses that come in our lives, because when we get down to it, comes from a lack of obedience. Maximum peace. Maximum freedom. It's found under the authority and direction of our creator and our king. You know, if I handed you a new invention and you didn't know what to do with it, you'd have to ask the inventor, well, you know, what's this for? When I was in high school, I wanted to fly jets. I was this close to going into the Air Force. You never know what could have happened, but I would still love to hop into the cockpit, cockpit of a jet and just take off. But can you imagine if somebody, you know, I hop in the cockpit and I'm trying to take off and they're like, hey, let me actually give you like a tutorial of what you're doing here so you don't kill yourself. Because I might be able to take it off, but I'm certainly not landing. It's going to end poorly, and, I, and I'm going to hurt myself. But it, we do the same thing with our lives. 
You know, we're just like, hey, let me do me. Come on, let me live my life. Why you got to cramp my style? Just let me take off and whatever I want to do, I'll do. I love in 1 Corinthians 6, it's the message version. Paul says, just because something is technically legal doesn't mean that it's spiritually appropriate. If I went around doing whatever I thought I could get by with, I'd be a slave to my whims. Again, our culture says whatever seems right to me, feels right to me, it is right to me. But in our quest to satisfy ourselves, we become a slave to our whims. We become a slave to sin. Again, the reality is we're going to be a servant to something. Something is going to be king over our lives, whether it's our creator king or it's some lowercase kings. Consecration is, is responding to God's invitation. Hey, king me, king me. Because, again, we're going to king something. Who's going to rock the crown? Is it going to be me? Is it going to be God? Is it going to be an idol? And you look at life. When you say no to one king, you're saying yes to another. When you say no to one king, eventually you're saying yes to another. We trade one king for another or a million little kings that end up as tyrants. You know, the things that master us, whether it's debt, addiction, bad habits, so many of these things, they start as this flawed expression of freedom. They start as a pursuit of of freedom or our false idea of freedom. Usually the process begins with I won't. I won't do this. But then gradually it becomes I can't. I won't becomes I can't. What am I talking about? Well, I won't forgive. And then you become a slave to bitterness and resentment. I won't protect my eyes. Then you become a slave to lust. I won't deny myself. Then you live ruled by materialism, greed, or gluttony. Come on, we were created to be ruled. And when you say no to the creator king, you're simply going to say yes to a lowercase king. Lust, greed, insecurity, they all start with this idea, I'm going to do what I want. But you talk about these sins against your own body in 1 Corinthians 6 and verses 19 through 20. Paul is like, hey, you're sinning against your own self when you sin with your body. He goes on to say, look, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. That's consecration. I'm not my own. I'm his. And that's a blessing because, again, there's a way that seems right to man, but it leads to death. But there's a way to life. There's a way to fruitful resolutions, and it's consecration. In our culture, we we cling to optimism, this hope that, man, if we wait long enough, things will progress. But in the Bible, hope is rooted in the fact that God can transform new creations. So we take our ordinary and set it aside for holy purposes. Your marriage, your job, your hobby, your kids, your 2017 and the natural progression, though, if you think like I do, you begin to worry, like, how, how do I consecrate these things to God fully? How do I make sure he's, he's king over every decision I make, over every facet of my life? And I, I look for his commands. Do you want me to go or do you want me to stay? What direction do you want me to take? If we don't have the commands to follow in the moment, then we can at least follow with the commands we have in hand. Chiefly, love God, love people. The two great commands and the great commission. In the areas that are clear, do what God says. In the areas that aren't clear, do what seems best and obey God's commands as you go. Sometimes consecration is less about the path we take. It's more about God cares about how we're walking the path. 
Are we honoring him? Are we seeking to glorify him and obey him? You know, in the early years of the church, not our church, but the church, there was no consensus about whether it was all right to eat meat that had been offered to idols. Some people were like, ah, it's no big deal, right? I love meat. Other people were like, you might as well be worshiping demons. So there was this, this conflict, and, and Paul addressed it, and his answer is both. He says, whatever you do, love God and love the people who are living out their faith as best they can. But you know what? God also outlines plenty of stuff right here in the Bible. There's a lot of stuff he's made crystal clear, black and white. So let's step under God's word this year. Let's be students of his word. Let's be servants of his word. Let's be readers of his word because that's one way we can consecrate ourselves. Again, Joshua 3, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. When you read books like Judges, it's so easy to point the finger out the window at the culture rather than looking in the mirror at ourselves. We can do that so quickly, can't we? Hear a sermon, you're like, yeah, you know, so-and-so needs to hear this. And then you get home and you realize, oh, that was speaking to me. <laughs> Revelations 3.20, it's funny because we use it a lot at altar calls. Like, God is knocking on the door of your heart, you know, for those that don't know him. But that, that verse was written to the church. Like, God's knocking on the, God wants to encounter us fresh every Saturday, every day, right? Judges is the same way. We might be able to say, oh, project that on the culture. But it's, it's chiefly a commentary on leadership. It again and again singles out leadership as its critique, these judges. You know, I, you could take them and, 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 and find lessons to live by from them, but they stumble again and again. The spinelessness of Barak, the paganism of Gideon, the self-centeredness of Samson, the violence against women that happens in the last chapter. You know, the church's biggest problem is often not the culture. The church's biggest problem is itself and our, our tendency to drift from dependent consecration to independent isolation spiritually under the guise of freedom. You know, next week we're going to look at strongholds that are in the church, strongholds that are, are in our church, strongholds that we need to work through that, you know, maybe we're not, it's not going to keep us from eternity, but it will keep us from the maturity that God's calling us to. But tonight I just wanted to introduce consecration. And tonight I just, as we wind up, I want to read the verse Joshua 24, 14. It says, fear the Lord. And serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods, the kings, that your ancestors worshipped and serve the Lord. Again, it says in this same passage, throw away the gods that remain in your midst. The lowercase kings. You know, I was thinking, why is it so easy in moments of temptation? We can find it so easy to say no to God and just compromise. And yet once we've said yes to sin again and again, it's so hard to say no to our flesh. It's so hard to say no to our sin. Why, is it, why does it work that way? Just reflecting, man, God is merciful. He loves you, and he loves you so much that he gives you free will and the freedom of choice. Guess what? The enemy doesn't love you. Sin doesn't love you. It doesn't have mercy, and it loves to rob you of freedom where you can't say no. Man, I spent my teenage years, the first couple years of my 20s, thinking, man, I'm living free. But there were so many acts that I freely did that robbed me of freedom to where when I was 21 and, and I started following God and I just got wrecked at an altar, I was in bondage to so many things, so many things in my life, so many lowercase kings that I couldn't say no to anymore because I said yes to them for so long. It started out as, God, I won't do that because I'm going to be free. And then it ended up as I, I can't, I can't stop. 
But you know, God broke, he breaks the chains. But consecrating my life, you know, I just want to warn you, it doesn't mean everything's all of a sudden going to be peachy keen for the rest of your days, right? Didn't mean I didn't have any problems. Doesn't mean that I'm always going to have my health. I'm always going to have a, a great hairline. It doesn't mean I'm always going to have possessions. Conflict, persecution, trouble, they're promised. But come on, when you live a life and I live a life consecrated to God, I, I know it's going to be fruitful. I know it's going to honor God. And I know it will outlive itself because it will leave an eternal legacy. You know, if I could have the worship team come up. Yesterday, we witnessed this peaceful transition of power in our culture, in our country and our culture. This transition of, of power. And it's going to have ripple effects. It's going to resonate for years. But I want to tell you, there's, there's one transition of power that means more to you than any transition of power you'll ever witness. And that's the transition of power in your heart. The most important transition of power is the one that happens in your heart. When you say to God, I don't, I don't want to wear this crown anymore because it belongs to you. I don't want to say King me anymore. I want to respond to, to your cry, hey, hey, King me. Because you were made to be ruled, and I'm either going to be ruled by the creator king that helps me walk in full freedom, helps me walk how I was called to, to walk, or I'm going to be crippled by lowercase kings. You know, Jesus Christ it's not a first and a last name. It's not like Justin White. Christ, it means anointed one. Jesus came as king. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it's repeated in John when Jesus enters into Jerusalem. It says, rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. He wasn't just sent as king. He came to be king. Every day, there's a battle for the throne of my heart and the throne of your heart. We got to be keenly aware of that. We can't play games with our throne. I need grace every day like the air I breathe. And I don't know what your 2016 looked like. I don't know what your 2017 looks like. But I know I want God to be king over my life, over my every decision, over 2017. And if that's you tonight, if you share that conviction, then, then could you stand as we go into worship? Come on, if you would say, God, I want you to be king over my life, my heart, every choice I make in this year as I move forward. Come on, I want to worship. We're going to close in worship. But I also want to do something, too, because, again, consecration is this response to, to God's invitation to king him. And again, every day we fight. Every year we fight because there's things that want to jump into that throne and rule over us. And if we're not focused if we're not driven, if we don't make a resolution and consecrate ourselves, come on, things will love to hop up on that throne. So as we, as we close in worship, I just want to do something simple. You know, once a month we, we do communion where you come up and you, you take the elements to remember what Jesus did on the cross. Come on, that's biblical. This is left field. This is just something we're doing tonight. I've got a bunch of checker chips up here. they got a crown on them. You flip it when you want to be king. <laughs> well, come on, let's, as we would if we were taking communion, as we finish this last song, just come up, take one. And it's a reminder that, come on, we were made to be ruled over. We were made. We're going to submit to something. We're going to worship something with our lives. Let this be a reminder that every day, come on, we say again, yes to God. Every day we wake up and there's so many things in our lives that say, King me, hey, make me the focus of your attention. Stress over me. Uh, uh, worship me. But every day as we wake up, there's that same invitation, King me. There's that same invitation to come. 
Again, Revelation 3.20 was written to the church. Open the door. Let him on the throne of your heart. Jesus, we thank you that you came as the Christ, the Messiah, the King. God, and we say again tonight, whether it's for the first time, for the thousandth time, we want you to be king over our lives. We want to consecrate ourselves so that we can see you do amazing things among us in our tomorrows. God, we believe that you're a God of miracles, as we sang earlier. God, we believe that you can use imperfect people like us to work miracles. God, but it's only going to happen when we're vessels that are consecrated to you. Jesus, we worship you. God, we, we say we want to open the door of our hearts so you can walk into the room, so you can change everything. God, take the throne of our hearts again tonight. In Jesus' name. But as we worship, you can come up, grab one of these. There's plenty. In Jesus' name.